Thank you guys so much for coming. Like, like Tom said, I'm Michael Coleman. I run the Soundworks Collection. Um, if you're not familiar with Soundworks Collection, it's a best way to describe it. It's like um, when I was growing up, there were the DVD extras, and like I loved all that behind-the-scenes stuff that kind of came out of that. And then I went to college, and, and I got out of college. I met Tom Kenny. Well, I met Tom actually in college. This is probably why you ruined my life, Tom, because I met you too early. Um, anyway, so I met Tom Kenny, Mix Magazine. I grew up from the Bay Area, and I started Soundworks Collection because of a great example of like what we're doing today, which is getting people together, talking about process, talking about inspiration, talking about things we hate, things we like. I mean, I told these guys beforehand, like, you know, when you get a bunch of filmmakers or audio engineers together, you, everyone's got trash on cl projects, clients. We just like to spill the beans and, and share our war stories. So, in a way, I kind of sugarcoated this as a master class, which is a nice way of saying, let's just get a bunch of really talented people together and talk about some of the most kind of confusing and inspiring, it's something that we're all aware of, but no one really fully understands. And so I want to have the opportunity to do a little bit of that, but kind of peel back the layers of the onion and start to understand, like, what is it like being a video game composer in today's world? And even when you guys started, I won't say how long ago you guys started, but when you guys did start, what it was like then, what it's like now, where we're going, because uh, video games have shown that there's no there's no ceiling. It's, we're going to keep evolving. VR has proven that. Uh, immersive audio has proven that. So I'm super excited to have our guests today. We have Jack Wall, Enon Zur, and Jesper Kide, which... Kid. Kid. Thank you. <laughs> Kid. Um, who, as you see, there's little for me to introduce. These guys have been uh, so deeply rooted in video game music and other, and we're gonna talk about everything else that they're doing too. But to start things off, I would love to hear about your guys' recollection of when you did start video games. I, I, we had this chat not too long ago, like a year ago, yes, we're in. Um, feel free to grab a mic, we're gonna need those. <coughs> what can you guys say, like give us a sense, you don't have to give us specific dates of when you started, unless you'd like to. But when you did start, what was the video game landscape like? What attracted you? Why did you get involved with video games? Any and all those kind of things that maybe stand out. Maybe we'll start with you, Jack. Yeah. What, what can you say about those early years? Yeah, we'll, we'll go, who's been doing this the longest? I don't know, it's <laughs> either Enon or me, I don't know. You, you've been doing this a long time as well. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, but uh, I don't know. It's yeah, been I mean, a while. <laughs> I, started, I started in 1994 with, um, because I played a game called Myst. Uh, you guys remember that game? I mean, it's, yeah, I was very excited about that. Um, and it was, um, it, it was a time when, um, just to give some context, uh, 1993 was the release of the first CD-ROM. It came with every PC. You, you guys remember those, right? Remember CD-ROMs? Yeah, it's, yeah. Remember that old disc, you know, disc platter that would come out of your PC? And uh, it wasn't a CD until later, but it was CD-ROM, so there was a way to hold data. It wasn't a floppy disk, right? So it was a way to hold more data. So this was the killer app for that. That was missed, and it sold like 17 million units because it was an OEM purchase with every <laughs> PC. So I had it, and I played it, and it kind of blew me away. I, you know, last time I had played a, a video game was probably, I don't know, maybe 10 years prior to that, maybe, in the arcades when I was growing up. So. Uh, Mist was a whole different experience. It was this right. multimedia thing, um, very immersive. The music was great, even though it was all made on a 
you know, a, a polyphonic, one polyphonic synthesizer, a Proteus, I think it was. Okay. That's that's a really old. Was movie. that samples or was that was just, just the MIDI? It was the General Do you MIDI? remember the Proteus? I, I forget who made it. Proteus M two Michael, or one? Michael, who made the Proteus? Emu. Emu. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Michael. So, <laughs> yeah, so it was uh, a poly one of the early polyphonic, you know, kind of digital synths. And mm -hmm. um, Robin Miller, who was the, one of the two guys who made the game in their garage, you know, he, he decided to do all the music himself. It was very atmospheric, very ambient. And I was impressed with how... Uh, immersive the experience was, and that got me interested in getting into video games. And then a year later, somebody asked me to do a video game. I was like, "What okay. was that? You what know, game was that?" Uh, a game called Flying Saucer. Anyone? Flying Saucer? Ring any bells? No, because it? it only got released <laughs> in Germany. They okay. spent so much money on this game. They hired yeah. me twice to do the music. Okay. The first time I did like an interactive score, and they said, "Oh, this is really cool and everything, but it's really limiting." So can you rewrite the whole score? We'll pay you to do it again. Oh my gosh! So that was like the way that I was able to, aff you know, afford all of my equipment because I just kept being paid to do this thing. So um, I built my first studio, and uh, uh, you know, there was I don't know back then there was like a dozen people doing video game music in the world. I think you know the, of of this caliber because we we're talking about hiring musicians and sure. And, uh, yeah, I think most of the game composers was in the UK back then, you know, the Commodore 64 and Amiga. And Japan. You, too. And Japan, yeah. yeah. What about you, Jan? Well, I, everything is kind of blurry. I, you know, it's like, because a long time ago, so I don't re really remember when, but I think it was in 1996, uh, September 14 at 8.14 in the morning. <laughs> um, <laughs> When I <laughs> exactly uh, when I got a, a phone call from somebody with a very radiophonic voice, who announced that he wants me to compose music because for video games, and um, and his name was Bob Rice, um, and he said, "Would you like to compose music for video games?" And I said, "No," and that was it. <laughs> um, so, but and he was like, yeah, like in, in, in our heritage of uh, Israeli and Jewish people, we call it nudnik. So he was a big nudnik. And he just kept on calling and calling and calling again. And it's like, well, what do you like? It's like, I like orchestral music, but forget it. I'm writing music for the Power Rangers. What do I need video games? <laughs> and then he said, like, wait, wait, wait. So uh, we give you orchestra. We give you everything. It's like, well, I don't know. Just, and it pays $1,000 per minute. Okay. I'm here. <laughs> I'm listening. Um, anyways, uh, so my first game uh, was um, Star Trek uh, Klingon Academy. Um, what year was that around? It was 97. Okay. Um, and uh, it was uh, this company called Interplay. Um, it was a very massive um, experience since uh, the audio director then was one of the pickiest in the industry until today and for the next 2,000 years of future. So... Um, it definitely sort of like paved my way toward uh, another few games. Um, we'll, we'll we're going to talk about that for sure. Obviously, yes. you you, that was not the end of your career. Yeah. So, Jesper, how about you? Yeah, I think my experience was a bit more, um, I don't know how to put it, maybe organic or something. Because I, I got involved, um, I got a Commodore 64 when I was a kid. I was 13 years old. Um, and that's the first computer that actually had an analog sound chip built into it. So I see that kind of as like the Bible of game music, you know. I mean, I know there was stuff going on in Japan. I just wasn't paying much attention to any of that. The Commodore 64 for me was was really the earliest that I can recall. Game music starting to sound like real uh, atmospheric music. 
Um, so I was playing around with that, listening to a lot of those composers, and um, I got involved with the European demo scene, which is like a art scene in Europe. Um, you know, people would program, they would do graphics, they would do music, I would do the music, and we would put these mini music videos together. Uh, that would be like a 10 minute thing you sat down and watched that would showcase what the computer could do. So you tried to push the, the computer to the limit. You know, a new game com would come out, and it would use a 3D engine, and we would typically say, oh, we can do way better 3D than that. We're gonna do a demo to show that we're much better, you know. Um, and so the Amiga came out after the Commodore 64, um, and I got really involved with the demo scene back then. And so I started the game company uh, with my friends. Um, and around that time in uh, 1989, I did my first video game. Which game was so that? I got you beat. <laughs> yeah. Wow. What, what game was that? USS Zhang Yang, nice. you know, a boat simulation for a were German you, were you company in called at the time? Uh, yeah, I was in Denmark. Yeah. When did that you move doesn't here? count. It, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just like I mean, it was like it's really, you know. Um, so when yeah. did you when did you move here then? Uh, that was 93. Okay. And so I didn't do my next game until uh, I don't know, 92 maybe or something yeah. and that was uh, Subterranea. I did Sega Genesis games. Uh, I did Adventures of Batman and Robin and for Sega and and um, so you know, I, I did. I, I was early out, but I did have a gap there until I really started getting busy with games. It's a, it's the type of thing until you start thinking back. Okay, twenty plus years ago, what was I doing? What was hot? What was exciting at the time? And you're like, oh my gosh, it's hard to believe how far we've come in this period of time. It seems you always think there's gonna be a plateau. Okay, technology is gonna. That's like HDR, 4K, you know, immersive audio. Like, what else can we do? And yet. That's not the case ever. So what for you guys, how, how would you guys, and anyone can answer, how would you describe from where it started, what were the big milestones that were like, oh my god, obviously monophonic, polyphonic was a big step. That, that, that was a big increment. But what other things come to mind when you're like, oh, thank god, like, or software that really spoke to you that was like, thank god, this is here now. Are there things that really helped you as composers and artists kind of express what you, you had in your head, what you wanted to do? Yeah, so um, I'll start because I have a thought, um, which is rare. Uh, but the first, when I worked on um, Jade Empire for um, Bioware, that was like 2004, 2005, was released. And then about a year later, I started working on, in 2006, I started working on Mass Effect. And between right around that spot, like, you know, when I worked on Jade Empire, I didn't see the game ever. Like, I just, please write, here's a list of music, write this music, and, you know, it needs to be this kind of tonality, and we'll talk about maybe what, you know, the palette we're going to use. When we got to Mass Effect, it was like, okay, here's the, here's the game, and you can actually play this game right now, and we can actually make videos of, of level playthroughs, and you can score a picture. I mean, that, that's, they weren't saying that to me. I was like, can we do that? And they said, yes. I said, please have somebody make me a video because I want to score this like a film. So that was a big moment. Which year was that again? 2006. 2006, that's even more recent. Go ahead. Well, but even, wait, way before that. I mean, like, um, I remember that the PS2 came and that was, for me, I think, was like the biggest, biggest move. I mean, the PS2 until today is just an awesome machine. It's, and the best thing about it, it we could start thinking 
in terms of stems and before that we basically tried and and like for example like for klingon academy or star trek um voyager and all these like things i did i just had like one stereo stream and we could loop it we could fade it we could do this but it was just basically it was always crashing and it was cut in the middle it was terrible and there comes the ps2 and suddenly everything is flawless. And in fact, we at this point we had like three or four stereo streams, but we were of course competing with dialogue and sound effects and stuff. But I like, you know, I would go to the studios and sit with a sound designer and it's like, well, okay, so here you don't have dialogue. Can I steal this stem for about like a minute? You know, like to add some stuff to the music? It's like, sure. And we were basically bake out a programming of music, especially um, for events that are happening all the time and we could plan them, but use different stereo, you know, stems and suddenly then basically the, uh, you know, the term interactive music was first brought to the picture. Today it's like, ah, interactive music, of course, uh, you work with Wise, you work with this, you're like, it, it, you know, this is how we started basically thinking about music that is responding in real time uh, to um, what's going on in the game. It was early, as early as 99. So I, I'll take it a bit further back. Um, uh, you know, I think when the Sega CD came out and suddenly, I think that was like 94 maybe, and suddenly games, uh, you know, could play back music that was on a CD which meant suddenly there's absolutely no limits to what you could do. You can go record with an orchestra and it'll sound incredible. Um, that for me was, was the moment when I'm like, okay, we, we, we can move beyond chip music, as I, was, as I call it, which is when the, the processor you know, makes all the music. You know, it has maybe uh, the PS1, maybe it had, who knows, six channels, let's say, and, you know, and send the, maybe the Sega Dreamcast or Sega Saturn had another amount of channels and you, were, you had to stay within those channels to make it work. But once things became like streaming on a CD, there was just no, no limit to what we could do. So that's, I think that's what the music actual, the music quality came to another level, you know. It was like 22K 8-bit audio, but you know. Well, some of the games I did, they would just stream the music straight off the disc. You know, so it's no, no, they, that, that, but so that was like forty four. That's you know. what I had to do. Like on the early before that was was all this kind of weird, you know, twenty two k music and yeah. stuff like that. And people complain about like how great or they they love how great like MP threes are. They're like, oh, it sounds great, and it's like, well, MP three sounds a lot better than twenty two k. It's true. It's true. I just think about the fact that the constraints you guys had from a data uh, storage standpoint. You guys had to be almost technicians when it came to compression algorithms or understanding codecs. Like, uh, maybe what was that jump from the CD-ROM? Obviously, you're saying it's a complete stream, but what was the compression or what, what well, was it like? Well, I think that really depends on what music program you worked in. Uh, like, for example, for the Sega Genesis, uh, the game company I helped found was called Syrinx, and uh, we had built our own music program, and it could stream FM quality music in 44 hertz, you know, 16-bit. So it sounded like incredible. It sounded like CD-quality music. Um, and whereas the most, a lot of other games on the Sega Genesis would be these really crappy kind of eight-bit sounding samples. Everything had noise in it, and, and the samples and the drums, lots of distortion. 
Uh, and here we had this, this clean sounding music. So it really had to do with what you, um, you, you had to learn how to program to the machine, you know, so. I'd love to ask you guys, uh, I mean, I feel like, okay, we're talking about early 90s, in a time when obviously, like you said, the landscape, the awareness of the public of, you can be a video game composer is actually a real job. Uh, what can you say just about the fact that, I mean, when I look at the series of games that you guys have been in front of and, and on, it's it's not like there's one, like some of these games were on Black Ops 4, we're on Mass Effect 2, there's multiple titles that have spread many years, these developments three, I don't know, five years usually, I mean they spread out, it's not like they're every other year, but what can you say about you guys grinding for so long, and then you hit these diamond in the rough franchises, and then you just kind of like have to hold on because now you know that those developers don't want to give you up. Now you're kind of you're associated with that gameplay just as much as the the studio is. Well, all right, <laughs> and I'm not getting into and Greg, don't look at me like this. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything wrong. I promise. Um, talking politics. <laughs> No, seriously, I mean, we know the old story. I mean, everybody wants the new and the better, okay? And it goes everywhere. So basically, just the mission to stay relevant um, is probably the biggest mission of all. I mean, and being, you know, I mean, and only if you are able to stay relevant that means that you'll get higher again and again. And if you did Fallout 1, doesn't mean that you'll do Fallout 2 and 3 or 4 and 5 or whatever and Mass Effect and stuff because people will always look to change, especially if teams are, are changing. Um, but basically, and uh, you know, you have to prove yourself again and again and again and again and reinvent yourself again and again every game and it doesn't matter if it's another um you know like another installment in the franchise and this is probably the biggest fight in you know in long um you know career uh stay relevant yeah it's it's true like uh, i think um just the fact that I've, I, I'm looking at that, like three Black Ops is, it's like, oh, cool, because the four just came out yesterday. And um, it's like, oh, I feel accomplished suddenly. But it, it's it's sort of like um, when we start, uh, you know, I'm working with a, com with a company called Treyarch, who is the developer of the Black Ops series. So, uh, you know, it, it, the way that you get your work and your jobs, it's just like everything else, it's just networking. So I worked with the audio director, of um, at Treyarch, ten years prior to working with them the first time at, in 2012, uh, when I worked on Black Ops 2, and he he and I worked at a different company. I was freelance. He was working for this company called Gigawatt, very small game developer in Hollywood, and they were making Barbie Secret Agent for Mattel, and I was working on Barbie Secret Agent. <laughs> Which my daughter, when you know, at the time she was four years old, it was her favorite game. She would sit on my lap and we'd play Barbie Secret Agent together. So it was awesome. But you know, we just always look back and then laugh because you know they were looking for a new composer for Black Ops Two, um, and they were all playing Mass Effect, and they were like, "Oh, we look, who's the composer of Mass Effect?" And they found me that way. And Brian, who's my friend, I hadn't talked to him in ten years, but he says. Uh, Oh my God, I know this guy I used to work with him. So it's just kind of crazy, you know. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. The the whole networking, and I mean, I um, I just did a film called uh, Tumbad, which is a uh, Indian horror film, probably the first Indian horror film ever made. That is. Uh, a good movie. And they had been, uh, I can say that because there's been a lot of talk about this. Um, and they had played Hitman. And um, one of the things that they, they, I, you know, this is something they told me after they had hired me, after I'd written the music, but they thought my, some of my music in Hitman Blood Money was absolutely insane, you know, and they're like, we, we need this guy because he's, he's, he can go crazy, but he can also keep it together and, and, and make some kind of formula uh, to make it work. And, and um, not that I see my music uh, that it, way. That's on your website, your resume, right? I can make it bloody and uh, yeah, insane yeah. music, right? <laughs> um, um, so, so it's true. It always kind of comes around. You know, once you you put yourself out there, and and um, you know, people start hearing your music, you you can never really predict what's going to happen, who's going to hear it. And I also did a Chinese movie, which they had been playing Assassin's Creed a lot, and they they hired me because of Assassin's Creed. You know, so uh, you really can never know. You know. I'd love to ask you guys about um, gameplay styles. You have RPGs, first person, third person, um, VR. I mean, uh, there's so many different styles now. What can you say influences your music more or less? Uh, does the matter of the style of gameplay? I mean, like turn-based games, I imagine they want some music while the player's trying to figure out what to do. They're like, just come up with a few cues that's going to last, you know, so many minutes. And, you know, they don't really give you kind of constraint, maybe constraints like you would have in a campaign or something. So... I did a lot of games from all styles, and I could say that basically it divided into two. The first one is always the same. What is the emotion that you want to instill in the players? And it doesn't matter if it's an RPG or first person or third person or strategic or whatever it is. What is you know the emotion you want to go with? And music is music. So basically, whatever you're going to write, first has to hit this emotion that is part of the story that be, is being told. That's it. And in fact, this is the most important factor. Now, the next thing is strictly tempo. <laughs> because, and you think about it, that if RPG is maybe 85, something like that, or less, 80, you know, then third person is going to be about 120, and first person is going to be about 144 <laughs> BPM. This is because just things are moving way quickly and events are changing way quickly. So think about to create the same emotion in the game, but in a way that will fit the tempo of the game. And that's why it's really, really important when you go and before you're playing a game to go and try to look at either similar games or go to the studio and play the game as a beta and see what is the tempo. Because once you see how these things all evolve, you know, you already have like sort of like the beat, you already have all the changes, you have everything basically that describes what is the pace that the music needs to be written. Well, I mean, I can add a little to that. I think um, you also have to score it from the perspective of the gamer. What do you want the gamer to to feel? Uh, is like Inan is saying, but also, you know, what do you want to um, uh, hint at? You know, uh, you can go into a cave and you can write cave music, and it maybe just fits being in a cave. But if you write something mysterious, maybe you're like, oh, maybe there's something. You know, I have to look for something, or you can go in different directions. You can you can hint at the player what you want or how to solve a puzzle. 
Um, and so I, I always score games from the perspective of being a gamer. You know, that's what I think about first. How, what would I think as a gamer to be really cool or really surprising or unusual? What, what's the most, what's the craziest thing I can do and get away with? That's often what I, what I try to do. Um, and I think it's just my love of being a, you know, being a gamer and always loving when, when games take risks and they, they, they play some music for you and you're like, wait, what, did, why, what is this music? This totally is not what I would expect. But then maybe as the story uh, unfolds or as you play the game, you're like, oh, okay, maybe it does make sense. Like when I did Darksiders 2, you know, it's a game about, you play the character death, right? So obviously from the beginning, I thought this was gonna be something really dark. Uh, but then the studio said, we want something really unusual, something we haven't really heard before in a fantasy genre. So I knew if I just went dark, it wasn't gonna work. So it became something Oh well, wait. This game takes place in the afterlife. Let's, you know, score it from a spiritual perspective. So it became all this really spiritual music. What does it feel like to go and cross over? And and it became become kind of more of a, a personal thing. But when you see the character and he's super badass, and then you hear the music, you're gonna be like, wait, what? You know. <laughs> but when you play the game and you see the game, you, I think you get it then. You know. Yeah, I, I always approach every score differently. Like even Black Ops 2, 3, and 4 are all very different scores. It, and it's all because I don't want to repeat myself and be part of it is that. Secondly, though, you just want a new experience. And the, I think the, uh, the main, major challenge with a first-person shooter is to inject some sort of emotion and some sort of motivation for the characters that are in the game. Um, and it was particularly hard on four because they canceled single player campaign after working on it for like a year. We had all this music written and everything and they canceled it. And so we had to repurpose that. But more importantly, I had to figure out like, okay, we have, now we have this blackout mode that has no music. Uh, you know, I was like, are you guys firing me today? <laughs> Uh, and then we have zombies, and that, which I've never, like I don't usually do a lot of music for that mode. And then we've got multiplayer, which doesn't have a lot of music. So I'm like, what are we gonna do? So they, they were like, no, we're gonna actually have a ton of music now. And we're gonna do a ton of stuff for, for zombies and all that kind of stuff. I think so. I have the clip here. Well, we can just look at it, we can see the visual. And this is a great segue in th to set up, uh, well, what is it like working with studios that you just don't know, timelines, budgets, creative constraints, uh, the fact that you're working with them for a long period of time. I mean, how do you guys describe just without, you know, bad talking studios, because these are, these, are, these are our collaborators, but what is it like working with studios? And what do you guys appreciate about the, like how it's set up, the, all, like pretty much just the system that they've like, this is how, this is how we work, you know? Well, I think every project, I think we all agree, every project we work on is different, you know, and, and every, every person you meet is different. Um, something I always try to do when I get involved with a project is to challenge the brief, you know? Here's the brief, here's what we expect, here's the music we need. And I usually say, do you mind if I play the game or if I come up with some ideas too? I think that's what filmmakers and composers do when they work together as well. When they work with a director and the director says, hey, you know, I have an idea about the music, it usually is expected that the film composer comes in and challenges that and says, oh, wait, we have some, I have some ideas that could be even better if you, if you like it. Um, so in games, um, sometimes we're presented with like a full brief, you know, there's like a, a list of, of the, what the music system can do and what the map is. And, 
and 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 I, I personally love challenging that. You know, how do we, um, you know, so so we can keep motivating the player uh, to keep playing the game and not just do what's expected at all times, but also when you surprise people and you do something uh, that's yeah that surprises people, it can somehow some sometimes that hits even deeper than if you just do what it's, it's expected. Right. You know? Yeah, I agree with that. And and also like I like to look for who are the the truly creative directors of the game because. Basically, you're trying to become the musical version of their vision for the game, so you want to work with them directly, and and you want to be able to, like, if you guys decide to do something together, that somebody else isn't going to swoop in and suddenly say, "No, I hate all that," and you know, you want you want to protect that relationship, really. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And and also, I mean, like, usually we are being brought to the process even four years ago, but then we got to understand that they we've they were working on it at least two years before. So as a game composer, you always have to have so much respect to the producers and the creative directors of the game because this is their baby. They've been working on it for years before you've been brought there. And sometimes they will have some weird shots to, that they're calling. And yet, I mean, I usually don't challenge their calls um, on what style and what type, because I trust that they are playing this game day in, day out for the last few years, and they know basically what they need. So even though you think, okay, this person, he doesn't know anything about music, it doesn't really matter. If he'll tell you, you write blue, then you will write blue. You will find a way to write blue or yeah, green or yellow. Conversation. I, I will write dark blue. You yeah. know, <laughs> well, uh, you know, I mean, let's not go there. <laughs> it's my first movie. <laughs> what What can you say though about the long timelines? Because I, when I've spoken with video composers, you guys have many projects going on throughout the year. They overlap. They start. They stop. How do you manage the expectation of like you know like when there's a delivery date when like they have to have their gold master out? Okay, we're working towards that finally. But how do you describe that timeline up until from the first meeting to the gold master? Well, I think like when you get high on a project, the intent is always that you stay within the deadlines of that project, and then you can start planning. Well, if this project ends at this time, then you can have something new start around that time. But the thing is, the projects never end when they're supposed to. Uh, at least in, in my case, I don't know. Um, but so, so the overlapping is almost impossible not to have happened. But then again, if, if, if a project takes longer and the music is, is, is you know, in, and there's a delay, then you might just sit there for a couple of months and you're like, what's going on now? Nothing. It's just, there's just a yeah. delay. So, so you know, Actually, you start off with the best intentions, right? They, they do but end at the. They do end now, always. Black Ops, I'm sure, ends on a, on a yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, cr like, Christmas or whatever it is. Yeah, like. your gun to your, you have a gun to your head. It has to be done on this day. Yeah. Uh, but usually, like the there, it, it doesn't. It, there's delays. And I mean, do you mind if I deliver a month late? Exactly. All right? <laughs> I mean, the technique usually, as a composer, if you work, and especially, I mean, and usually these guys are advanced and they are experienced. But just like, all right, I always work backwards. Okay, when do you need it to be done? Okay, a week before, you know, I deliver the last key. Okay, then two weeks before, we're done mixing. Okay, so three weeks before, we recorded. All right, so, and basically you work backwards and this is how you fill up your calendar, not from now to then, 
but from then to now. And I found out that this is actually the easiest and the most um, effective way to plan. And this way, even if they're not you know, controlling their timeline, you are still in control and you're always ahead of the curve. Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest challenge for any composer, whether it's video games or TV or film, is your schedule, right? So basically, uh, the biggest stress that I feel when I'm starting a project is, okay, what's the budget for recording? Wait, and they're paying you guys now. Yeah, they actually pay us. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. Um, <laughs> once in a while. Uh, wh what's the budget? In other words, what can you afford to do with that? And then when does this stuff have to be in the game and I have to walk away? Right. And then like right, right. like Enon just said, you work backwards from there and then you can sort of schedule it all out. I, uh, I was recently up in Montreal at Eidos, Mon Eidos Montreal for the Tomb Raider game. I was there with Brian, uh, the composer. Two two weeks before the game was supposed to come out, and they're like, "Oh, we need the we need the soundtrack. You know, can you guys master your soundtrack?" And it's like, "Well, but, but, but we didn't talk about this, but I don't want to screw you guys over. I want to release the soundtrack. What is it like now, also releasing your soundtrack? That's because exactly what happened to me yesterday. <laughs> okay, like where's the soundtrack? The game was released yesterday, and they called and said, "Where's the soundtrack?" I was like, "Well, I I don't know." <laughs> Why do you think that happens, and what's the expectation? It's just they see that as another. I mean, there's fans, there's people who want to. I think there's, especially in game development, there's just there's so much that has to be done to make a game, you know. And in 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 film, it's a little different because you usually have a director involved and uh, in the post production process, you know, and and they're just thinking about the uh, you know the CGI or the and the music and so he has time to talk to you you have time to communicate with the creative head and you talk music but in a, in a the the creative director or the game designer of a game they are really overworked you know they're dealing with maybe 500 people in all these departments and they are trying to get everything all these different little elements of the game has to come together into one coherent whole uh, and uh, the stress and, and what they go through, they don't really have time at that process to sit with the composer. Yeah, so, you know, I think I have a way we can improve the music over here a little bit. Like that. I mean, they, they're under incredible pressure, you know. So I think the, the talk becomes more something we have to bring up, maybe with the marketing department or something, but maybe they are not paying attention until marketing is in full swing, you know. Uh, there's always some challenges there, you know. Well, well the thing is, like, Get, I mean, again, we are sitting at Sony, so it is Hollywood in a way. But um, the, the world of computer games and the world of movies and TV is very, very different. And one of the way <coughs> that one of the the ways that it is different is that the players that are sitting that they're sitting with the music for hours and hours and hours, and not watching the film for hour and a half, two hours, and that's it. So they know the music. And if they hate the music, they hate it. If they love it, they love it. But if they love it, they will buy it. And they will play it in their you know, cars. And they will be invested in the music. So you could see, basically, uh, the gamer community, the love for music and the attachment. And there, it's no mistake that like the biggest concert in the world for music for media is actually video games right, and yeah. not movies. But it's... You know, the reason is that gamers really, really hear this music again and again and again and again. So basically, <laughs> soundtracks, I mean, every movie, like the biggest movie that will come up, you know, soundtrack will do, I don't know, 
200,000, they will, you know, sell, what, 1,000, 1,500 pieces, whatever. I mean, like, I mean, I don't know other games, but I know that they're doing at least as good, but Fallout 4 sold about million and a half dollars for soundtrack, which is not a lot of money in terms of Hollywood, but if you think about how much money they put into the music, then they covered it and and then some. Yeah. Okay. So so basically. How much did you get of that? Like, well, I wasn't gonna. Please. Yeah. Um, no, but so again, soundtrack is really really important, and game companies now really understand that it's another way basically to well, cover I, costs. And know? and to add to that, I think that the you know the way that game music has found its way into opera halls around the, the world is, is just a really, really interesting development. Um, I mean video games live kind of jump started. Yeah, that, and that, right? I mean in, in Krakow, you know, I was just in Krakow where they played my music for like fourteen thousand people in an arena, you know, and people were crying when they were playing Ezio's family. I you know, some people would it, they take it very serious. I mean this in the most positive way. And the cosplay, you know, everything that's involved with this, it's just, it means, again, as Ina said, it means so much to them because they played these games and they don't play them for 50 hours or 50 hours that it takes to complete the game. They play it again and again and again, you know? So it's hundreds of hours they have invested in these games. So when this music comes on, it, it means a lot more than if you watched a movie for two hours where you didn't even notice the score, perhaps, you know? Which brings up the point of implementation. If you have really good implementation a piece of music can really mean a lot to the players you know and if it's not done right it'll mean less and sometimes that's a bone of contention i, I mean the, the thing about i can add to that because for example for assassin's creed 2 um Ezio's family has become like the theme of the, the franchise right but um it was really only used in the opening of assassin's creed 2 uh, when we were introduced to the characters and then for the end credits you know we didn't really use it inside the game so to think that how precise that music would use was really one of the reasons that it became yeah. so powerful. I had a I had a piece similar that that, that had a it's not similar to Enzio's theme, but it's it it, it happened where uh, in Mass Effect um, two or no so sorry Mass Effect one um, I wrote a piece of music. It was very ambient. Um, it was meant for when you're going in the archives of this. Uh, this is basically like a mausoleum. Uh, that these dead ancestors of, of aliens were buried, and it was so this reverent kind of piece. And at the last minute, the director of the game pulled it from there. He left it there, but he pulled it and put it in the menu. Mm. And it became one of the fan favorite pieces because it's just you put it on, it gives the whole game its vibe. And that, I didn't write it for that, but it's perfect for that. It's really interesting. Yeah, I remember when I did uh, my, the music for Dragon Age 1, and it was like this song that I wrote that I didn't think that it was that important, but. Um, they slapped it uh, against the scene that these two people are kind of doing it. That's, that's, you mean, it, you it that wasn't the intent it, when you wrote it? it <laughs> I have no idea. And it really became sort of like, really, the most what? Liliana's song? Yeah, bring up a memory, you know? <laughs> so On that yeah. note, I would love to open it up to some audience questions. If anyone has a question, uh, I'll just pass the mic off right now. Here you are. Hi, thank you. This is really interesting. Um, I just wondering, what is your process of creating the sound of a game? Do you get um, maybe the companies ask for a specific thing to you know be special? Do you go through just finding instruments, or maybe even creating or sampling, or what's your process? 
I don't know. I think getting an overview of what it's about um, and getting the atmosphere. Um, you know, sometimes there's an intent behind the game as well. That's always interesting to find out. Um, and um, you know, I think you know, zoom out as far as you can. You know, and um, try to create a um, a roadmap. You know, from A to Z. You know, and um, sure. You know. Uh, Figuring out what the instruments and the instrumentation and the music style and all that kind of stuff is uh, is part of the process. But um, I think when you zoom all the way out and you start scoring to the world building, you know, and to the mythology of the project and the the background history, because sometimes there's a background history that they won't even um, let you play in the game, mm -hmm. but it's just part of the mythology, and it's still stuff that you can really use in the music. And then as you get uh, start zooming down, you can start making more precise decisions. You know, now we're over here, so the instrument's not got to be a little Greek over here, or now we got to do this yeah. over here, you know? Yeah, well, it, it, it all starts from the big three W's. It's the when is the game, where is the game, and what is the game? You know, and you basically start to, you know, go and focus from there. And it's really, you know, sort of like, okay, so where is the game? The game in, like, you know, ancient Greek, right? Okay, I know already what I was like, okay. And it also brings us like, when is the game? So, you know, and then we'll go to what is the game usually is about what is the story, what is the narrative, what is the motivation, who are. So basically, these two, it's all about a story, where and when it, it takes place. And that's what's. So, for example, like on Fallout, you know, so this is a story about that the world that as we know it ceased to exist in the 50s, and now we are at 2030. Okay? So there was like a parallel you know, reality that grew up from there. So you try to imagine that, and it's like, all right, so most of the in, uh, musical instruments got destroyed. You know, we have a lot of junk lying around and stuff, but people still like music. So they try to do music what, what they have. And this is how I took it from Lyot. So, all right, so I'll go to my junkyard and I'll go to, you know, and I'll basically hammer on chairs and bow on vases and do all this stuff and try to play in an unconventional way in a conventional classical instrument and take you know like try to play conventional way like hitting and stuff but unlike chairs and bases and other other stuff I mean, so. but that's that seems really exciting I mean to like have those creative constraints and then you, you end up in a, a new place that you probably never had chance or reason to go to just uh, yeah. exactly right yeah. yeah I was working on a game one of my early games was miss three and and yeah, thank you. There's some fanboys here. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I was thinking because this world doesn't actually exist, we should create instruments that don't actually exist. So I went back into the old artwork, and they would have, like, you know, pictures of these woodwind instruments that I've never seen before. So I actually found a woman. This is, I think, the perfect answer for you. I found a woman who makes her own clay instruments. And she comes and plays them. And so all these instruments, no one's ever heard them because they're one-offs, right? She makes them, and she, we did that. And then I used also, for the main theme, I used a, um, a thing that everyone heard, has heard now called the duduk, which is an Armenian instrument. Back then, the only place I'd ever heard that was on a Peter Gabriel uh, score for, I think it's not Passion of the Christ, it was Last Temptation of Christ, one of those. Um, and he had this Armenian guy playing. And I thought it was the most amazing soulful instrument. I and I and I everyone was everyone was like, "What is that?" And that's exactly what I was trying to elicit in the score because none of these instruments should be have heard been heard before. 
Great. Another question? Anyone? Here's I'll handle. Right here. I got you. Sorry. Oh. I had both. <laughs> Thank you. Hi. Um, just want to say, first of all, uh, I'm fans of a lot of all three of your guys' work. I, I'm curious as to whether um, the three of you have any like particular ways that you um, go about kind of getting inspiration for uh, a new project or whatever that you're starting on. And also as a second quick question, if you have a uh, particular game um, that you, one that you didn't do, but a game that you really love the soundtrack to that's like a favorite of yours. I mean, I always loved uh, playing Halo, and I thought Halo had great, uh, has great music, uh, especially the Halo theme, and of course, scoring Halo. Who wouldn't want to, I think, score Halo? That would be cool. <laughs> Uncharted. Uncharted, yeah. Jack, what about you? Um, and then, um, what's the one uh, Santolaya did? Um, it's just Last of Us. Yeah, I thought that was really cool and sparse and awesome. It reminds me of the first time I played. Um, uh, what, what did Trent Reznor do? He did uh, early, early on. Was it Quake? Quake. Yeah, I remember for, as a little kid playing Quake and then being like, "Who's Trent Reznor?" And then like that was my introduction into into the world of video games. You must have been like, "Whoa!" <laughs> <laughs> but I, I I feel like now it's it's we're at a time and place where it like the entry point uh, like anyone can not anyone. I'm just saying. Uh, the studio is looking for a unique voice, a unique sound. And so, like Gustavo Santolaya doing Last of Us was a unique voice. And, and I think, obviously, like you said, every time you go back, you have to prove yourself. You're having to... But you were asking about inspiration, and I believe that inspiration <laughs> is like a shadow. You know, it's like your shadow. It's always there, okay? You just don't see it, okay? And you cannot really chase it because then it'll run away from you, you know? So, and then if you sit there and you're just with this, you know, I mean, I don't go to the trees or to the mountains or to the oceans or, or anything. It's basically enough really to sit, you know, with yourself and try to imagine what you really want to write for this project. I always try to imagine that I am inside this game. I am inside. I live this thing. It's enough to imagine, you know, the story and that you're inside the story to give you tons of inspirations. Yeah, and yeah, also yeah, the yeah. kids' uh, uh, tuition for the college, especially Northwestern. <laughs> So you don't go to the mountains, Jack. What, where do you find your inspiration? Oh man, there's two places. Yeah. One is in the shower. Good. And I'm I'm totally serious. I don't know what it is about the shower. Yeah. Bathroom. 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 Okay. Good. No, just shower and then going for a walk. Okay. Like, for some reason, it all comes to me. Probably physically moving your body yeah, and exactly. getting out there. Okay. There's. I mean, there's no one secret silver bullet. There never will be. Never has been. I mean, I, I don't have a perfect answer for, for inspiration, yeah. but I think it, it's, uh, it's, I think it's often uh, a struggle, and it's the struggle that you just keep fighting, you know, because uh, um, I, I, there's so many projects I've done where I had to, to kind of do something different every time, and so it became kind of a, a thing for me. I have to do something new for every, every project. Um, and sometimes it's hard to get inspiration from the game because they will send you something that looks so early and it looks so rough and you're like, if I get inspired from this, it's going to write some really crappy music and then when this looks awesome, my music's going to suck, you know? So I kind of, sometimes you have to kind of forget about it and, but what I really love looking at is concept art um, because the team, especially the art department, looks at concept art as like, this is how we would 
wish our game looks and feels. It might not look like that right now. Um, so you might have to forget what you saw if they sent you a video, but you can look at the concept art and you can say, okay, this is what everyone is looking at. Let's really um, be inspired by it that. It becomes the North Star, really, that everyone's like, yeah, go that way. And just yeah. to add one thing to what Yanon was saying about, you know, just be there and kind of, you know, all the inspiration. When you do see uh, the game in a, in a fairly uh, advanced state, all the inspiration should be right in front of you. But really, um, I think there's a, a certain, uh, a very important aspect of that is the discipline to sit in your chair and not get up, you know, and to actually do the work. Because if you don't, <laughs> if you just constantly, oh, I don't know what I'm gonna do, and you just kinda, oh, maybe I'll get something to eat, or, you know, oh, I wonder what's on Facebook right now. I mean, you know, you just can't, you, you gotta turn the phone off, you gotta turn your Facebook off, you just can't, be distracted. Distractions yeah. are your enemy. You just and, gotta be focused. And you know, I think one of the, the scores I wrote that I felt was the easiest score I've written was uh, a game called Freedom Fighters. And um, so the game was basically done when they sent it to me. They were just tweaking the gameplay. So all I did was just play that game. I played that game day and night for months and months and months. And all the music, it just came like right out. No problems whatsoever. It's just uh, super easy. Um, and it makes me think, you know, a lot of times when you work with films, you have so much more to work with. You know, you can follow the narrative and you can talk to the director. Any, any questions you have, you usually are able to just call him up or talk to him or text or whatever. Um, it, but um, with games, it's, it's, it's very different, you know. In some ways, games are harder to score, you know. You guys, thank you so much for coming down and spending this time. I feel like it's rare that we have a chance to stop and sit down and talk about this stuff. But I really appreciate you guys spending the time today. So give it up, you guys, for, for these guys. All right. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.